Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Are you exhausted this year by any chance? Are you just worn out? Has this year just taken its toll on you? I know it has for me. I know that I've been very much overwhelmed by the constant pivoting that has to happen in ministry this year. There's always something that has to shift so we can adjust to whatever is going on in the latest news or the latest regulations and so on and so forth. One of the things that I think throughout all of history the people of God have always looked forward to is that rest, that final rest, if you will. And this morning we're going to take a look at finding rest. What, is that, what does it mean to find rest? What is that rest that we're looking forward to? We're going to look at three specific things here in this text. The number, number one, the powerful word in verses 11 through 13. Number two, the understanding high priest, verses 14 through 15. And number three, the bold response in verse 16. So let's start off with number one, the powerful word, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We see here in the beginning that there's a rest that's mentioned. And I believe it's important to define what the writer of Hebrews is mentioning here, especially when we look back at verse number one in chapter four. Look at what he says. He says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. So therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So a couple of things to look at here. Some scholars argue that the rest referred to here is heaven because the gospel is mentioned in verse number one. But is that really what the gospel that's mentioned in verse one really entails? It's important to define what the gospel that was preached to them is that were around the time of Moses and Joshua and our gospel that we've believed here after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that the same gospel that's being referred to? You see, the book here that we're reading is the book of Hebrews. 
These are Jewish believers in the Messiah who are under pressure to go back to Judaism. The gospel essentially was the good news promised to the Jewish people. We're talking Moses and Joshua, that if they obeyed God by faith, they would enter His rest. And that also included the land promises. The question is asked many times, and I'm sure you may have actually asked this question, um, how did they get saved, if you will, back then, right, in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? I think it's a question that a lot of us have probably struggled and wrestled with a time or two. Uh, the simple answer is faith, and I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit more, so hopefully give you a better understanding. Just as Romans tells us clearly, there's always a remnant from the beginning. Those who are not just physical descendants of Israel, but also spiritual descendants of Israel as well. The longer explanation can be summarized this way. The good news for the Jewish people was promised originally to Abraham and passed down through the generations. In fact, what do we know about Abraham? Abraham is the father of the Jewish people who believed God and his promises. So what were some of the promises that Abraham believed? The land that they would one day inherit as a people. The seed that would one day come that would bless all nations. That seed specifically is Christ. How do we know that? We see that in Galatians chapter 3. When God promised Abraham through his seed that he would bless the nations, he was pointing to the future Messiah that was coming through his line. The only one who saves is Jesus Christ. And by faith, there were those that believed God's promise of the land and also the sending of the Messiah. Let me unpack a little bit of what I mean by that. From David and his Messianic Psalms, we see that David looked forward to that day. To the writings of Isaiah, who also prophesied of the virgin birth. Even Simeon and Anna believed by faith that Jesus was coming as a means to salvation to the nations. Remember, even when the angels arrive on the scene, what do they say? Good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And what was that? What was that great message that they were delivering? That the Messiah was to be born. To this text in Hebrews, we find specifically in verse 2, that hearing the good news that God had promised them a land and a seed, the Messiah, did not benefit them. Why? It's very simple. Because they didn't have faith. Faith in what God had promised is what they needed. And we do that, need that as well. Their lack of faith kept them from entering the rest God had for them, which is demonstrated in their disobedience to the revealed Word of God. And we see in verse 3, one commentator actually points this out. In verse 3, notice what it says here. For we who have believed do enter that rest. The better translation would be, we who believe. Not who have believed, but who believe. Which is the writer not looking back to a past experience of faith, but a present faith, if you will. Listen to these statements earlier in chapter 3 to help us understand a little bit better why faith is so crucial for us as believers. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Just turn back one page. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would have been spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the, home, the hope, firm to the end. And then skip ahead to Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Beware, brethren, 
lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, notice this phrase again, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We see clearly that faith is connected to obedience. That is the key for all of us as believers. Moving into verse 11, back to where we started at this text, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to be diligent, to put effort, if you will, to enter that rest. This means that your faith connects to obedience, believer. Faith disconnected from obedience is no longer faith, because faith that saves is an obedient faith. This is where the text connects this to the importance of the Word of God and yours and my life. So what are some of the qualities that we see here about the Word of God? What's the first thing that we notice here? It says that it is living. The Word of God is living. This Word is what God uses to give us new life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You and I would not believe the Gospel if the Gospel was not preached through the Word of God. It's also powerful. You see, one of the things I think is sad is that many believers don't really believe the Bible is powerful. How do I, why do I say that? They don't take the time to pick it up and read it. We don't really believe it's that powerful. We don't really believe that energizes, is effective, is overwhelming in our lives. This word has intensity to it, believer. Many of us don't even realize it. Have you ever read something in the Word of God that just blew you away? I mean, it just absolutely rocked your world. You're like, my goodness, I've never seen this before in my life. I never saw this truth before. It's powerful. It's sharp. The Word of God is sharp. This cuts through the flesh of every person. It's not looking on the exterior. The Word of God is not there for us to keep with appearances on the outside. It's not concerned with what you look like on the outside. In fact, the Word of God was never about that to begin with. Because the Word of God exposes, believer. The Word of God exposes it, not only cuts, but it exposes what's on the inside. This Word exposes the very thoughts and intents of the heart. It cuts right to the motives that you and I have in our lives. The falsehood, falsehoods that we proclaim to ourselves and others. It tells us how it really is. Believer, if you want a reality check on who you really are, the reality check needs to be this. Not your opinion of yourself. We all have wonderful opinions of ourselves. Sometimes our opinions of ourselves are worse than what Scripture actually reveals as well. Some of you probably don't think that's possible. But there are plenty of believers that truly do want to live a faithful life before God, and they struggle consistently, and they're wondering when this will all be over because they're so frustrated with struggling. God's got a rest waiting for them. 
He's got a rest waiting for them. Believer, you know one of the most dangerous things is when you have no struggle at all. When you read the Word of God and none of it matters to you. When you come to church on Sunday, you hear a sermon, and it just doesn't matter at all. It's always about everybody else. The Word of God, it exposes us. What has the Word exposed about you that may be on the outside no one else knows? Are there some things that the Word of God has exposed about you that you know you really wouldn't want anybody else to know? I'm sure we all have those things. It's powerful enough to not only save you, but to keep you secure in Christ. It keeps you secure in your faithfulness to Christ, who is our high priest. Number two, the understanding high priest. Look at verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, what's interesting here in this text is the high priest was responsible to make intercession to God for the people by offering the sacrifices required under the Mosaic law and also was selected out of the priests to offer the sacrifice once a year for the people on the Day of Atonement to place the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus was made our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, apart from the law actually given to Moses. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice to satisfy the law and wrath of God for our sin. Believer, Jesus' sacrifice was enough to earn redemption once and for all because he kept the law perfectly. Jesus also, and we see here in this text, he faced the temptations that we face, but never gave in to them. Jesus was specifically tempted by Satan with the following, being fully God and fully man. Number one, one of the ways that he was tempted is the lust of the flesh. Turn these stones into bread. We're not going to turn to the text, but when Satan tempts him in the wilderness, he says, turn these stones into bread, as Jesus had fasted. Don't rely on God's provision. Make it happen for yourself. Is that not you and me? We see impossible situations in our lives, or what seems to be hopeless, and we just think, if I had just done this, it would have turned out better. I could just fix the situation if I had just done this other thing. If I had just stopped doing this, it would have worked out the way I wanted. If only I had more time. If only I had more money. It would have all worked out just fine. If only, right? And then some of us start believing this. We won't publicly say it on Facebook or to our friends. But God only helps those who help themselves. And what I need from him, he's not providing, so I'm going to go get it from myself. What's the point of relying on him? Don't tell me you've never been there, believer. 
Jesus responds to this temptation by stating the Word of God is essential, not just the bread that I'm wanting right now. Believer, the the moment that you think you don't need God is the moment you need to get right into the Word right away. That is the moment you need to run right back to the Father and ask for His advice. You're about to make a foolish decision on your own. Number two, the lust of the eyes. All these things, this is Satan speaking to Christ, all these things I will give you if you just worship me. If you just bow down and worship me, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, we may not have Satan come to us so clearly to see this, right? We've, have we not wandered in our eyes and looked at what the world has to offer and said, man, is this really worth me doing what I'm doing? Is it really worth me striving to be faithful in my walk with God? I mean, look at all these people. Look at these elites, if you will, in society who have it all together. They've got the money, right? One of the big frustrations that's going on in our culture right now is all the hypocrisy around lockdowns, right? These people just get to have a pass. Is it really worth following God when others have it a lot easier than I do? Why am I doing all this for? Why am I striving to live a pure life? They're not. For some reason, it doesn't seem like God's judging them much for it. Why am I even going to church? Like, why do I go to church? Is it just because I've got I got to check off my religious duty? I got to feel better in my conscience that I came this Sunday. Believer, why do we come? Why do I try so hard to serve God when it seems like others have it easier? And they don't even try to serve God. The wicked seem to prosper, and the righteous get rained on in destruction and frustration. Why is it that I'm barely making ends meet by trying to do it God's way? Jesus responds to the lust of the eyes and the offer from Satan by stating clearly it is God that is to be worshipped and only serve him. Believer, your response to the things that entice you in this world will be determined by your perspective of what God's Word says. Oh, you can tell everybody that you love the Lord, that you're a disciple of Jesus, but your life will prove what you really follow. Your priorities will prove what you really want. Your time spent will prove what you really are after. Number three, the pride of life. Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, jump off the temple of God. God actually promises Jesus that he will make sure you're protected. He'll send an angel to catch you if you fall. What's interesting about this one is that Satan doesn't come up with his own temptation. He uses the word of God out of context to tempt Jesus. I'm going to park on this one for a little bit because I think it's so important for Christians. 
There are decisions we have made by our tempting God by misapplying His Word. If a certain verse is an encouragement to you, please make sure that you're reading it in its full context, believer. And don't make sure, and make sure, I'm sorry, that you don't let Satan manipulate you into using it out of context. I'll explain what I mean here in a moment. One of the most dangerous tools of Satan is the Word of God taken out of context. And I'll tell you, Christianity is filled with people that take Scripture out of context. And they live their lives as if Scripture doesn't have context at all. They read a verse and they go, this is it, I'm just going to apply this. Forget the rest of the chapter. People want the blessed life without applying everything before the blessed life that's promised. Just because God says he will supply all your needs, believer, doesn't mean you need to buy something you can't afford because God promises he'll supply it. You don't need a new iPhone every year, believer. You don't need a new car outside your budget. You don't need an upgrade every year in whatever category it is. If you can afford it, just be honest enough to admit it might not be a need. And enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what God blesses you with. Just don't go around telling everybody you need something unless you really do. Don't misapply God's word. Just because God says, judge not lest you be judged, does not mean that you get to stick your head in the sand and not pay attention to people around you. Well, I don't want to judge anybody. It doesn't give you an excuse to be stupid. None whatsoever. You are to judge yourself first. That's the point of that text. You're to judge yourself strictly by the Word of God. And after you've done so, you can look at the lives of others and make sure you're paying attention who your children go out spending time with. Shame on us parents if we're like, well, I don't want to judge. I'm just going to let my kids do whatever they want. That's foolish. And it's not biblical. And it's misapplying the Bible. You need to have discretion, biblical discretion in your life. It goes beyond stranger danger, okay? I don't judge will not be an excuse if something should happen to people around you that you didn't pay attention to. Horrible misapplied text. See it all the time. In fact, it's actually the unbeliever's favorite verse. Because it feels like it gives them a pass to just do whatever they want before God. And Christians are like, oh, you're right, I can't say anything either. That's not what the text is saying. Just because it says that you can do all things through Christ does not mean that if you're not cut out for a certain career, that you just keep trying hard enough, you'll get it. God's given you and me certain gifts and outside of those gifts, we're probably not going to be able to do well in that. Just because you try hard enough doesn't mean you'll make it in that area that you want. God's given you certain gifts and talents. It's absolutely insulting to say that he's wrong about that. And watch your own way. Don't use Philippians 4.13 to try to prove it, believe it. 
Just because it says the love of money is the root of all evil does not mean that only those with money are evil. Some of y'all have that perspective. Oh, they have money. They're evil. It's because they're rich. That's why they're sinful. And I'm some saint because I'm broke. Could it be that you're being foolish with your money? And you're not applying what the Word of God says? And maybe they are? Just a possibility, right? Your own desire for the money of others could very well be the root of evil in your heart. Just because you don't have a certain possession does not mean that money can't be your God. Here's the kicker. God promises to bless those that give. And some of you have not been blessed because you're stingy. You don't want to give. You want to hoard. It's all about me. I'm living my life for me. I will do everything to spend money on everything that we want as a family, and then I'll give God something at the end. Whatever's left, man, that two bucks that's left over after I've spent it all, it's yours, Lord. I gave, right? At the end of the day, you're right, you did give. Some of us, we try so hard to hold on to what God's given to us that it slips right from our hand. Others of us foolishly spend it on what we ought not to, and we wonder why we're lacking. You can be in one of the two categories. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Both are going to give the same result. If it's God's money, you need to spend it the way he wants, not the way you want. Jesus knows how to sympathize and show compassion for us because he himself has endured the temptations that we have. So what do we do knowing how vital it is that the Word is exposing those things in our lives? Because the Word tells us who we really are. And we have a high priest, Jesus, who's endured the very things that we go through in this life. When it comes to temptation. And you know what, believer? Here's the thing. Jesus went through it flawlessly. He never stumbled once. But he understands the temptation you're going through. We respond from knowing what we know about the Word and Jesus being our high priest, we respond by coming boldly to the throne of grace. What a stunner, right? Like I'm going to approach the throne of grace boldly. Number three, the bold response. Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look, believer, because we know our flaws and our weaknesses and that Jesus is our high priest who intercedes for us and he's paid the debt that we owe, we come boldly to the throne of grace. You don't come to the throne of grace demanding but you boldly come because of what Jesus has done. In simplest terms, grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. You come back to the throne of grace to receive and obtain more mercy and more grace. You know what's tragic is a lot of us, we've come to Jesus initially pleading for mercy and grace. 
But as time goes on, we almost feel because we are unworthy of it, I can no longer ask for that. Believer, you need Jesus just as much as the first day you met him. You need to come to him and ask for mercy and grace once again. And the reason we live such defeated lives is because we don't boldly come to the throne of grace on Jesus' behalf for us. You don't come boldly because you have anything to offer. You come boldly because Jesus has already paid it all. You've got nothing to offer but Him. But He swapped for you. Believer, when you fall, repent and get back to the Father, but come boldly knowing that Jesus has paid your debt. This is not a demanding approach, but a bold approach. There is a difference. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. Do not claim. Do not demand. Let your requests be made known. Let them come from your heart. God will understand. We have no right to demand even revival. Some Christians are tending to do so at the present time. Pray urgently. Plead. Use all the arguments. Use all the promises. But do not demand. Do not claim. Never put yourself into the position of saying, if we do but this, then that must happen. God is a sovereign Lord, and these things are beyond our understanding. Never let the terminology of claiming or of demanding be used. Believer, there's a difference between being bold and demanding. Esther was bold. She was not demanding. So in conclusion, have you been to the throne? Have you been to the throne? When was the last time you came boldly? What do I mean by boldly? With confidence, openness, unhindered to the throne of grace. Believer, have you just been beaten up this year? Just felt like, you know what, I can't come boldly. God knows what I've been like. I've failed so many times. I just hesitate because I really don't want to approach the throne of grace right now because God knows where I've fallen this last week. Believer, come boldly. Not because of you, but because of him. Jesus' righteousness covers your sin. His sacrifice covers your sin. The Father will continually grant you even more mercy, believer, and grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of needs this year that I feel like nobody can meet but Him. Are we not quite needy this year? I'd argue that many of us are. If you want to enter that rest, that final bliss of enjoying all that God has in store for his children, you need to trust Christ if you have not yet. Because he's not your high priest. 
Jesus is the high priest for the saints of God that have believed on his name. And believer, let me encourage you with one last thing as we close this morning. Whatever it is in your life that you're going through, there is a rest waiting for the people of God. And that rest can be found in Christ. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us access to the throne of grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I hesitate so many times to enter boldly knowing the man I am. But I know that you encourage us to come by the blood of the Lamb, by the access Jesus gave to us, to you. Father, I ask that you would encourage each and every saint here in this church and watching online that we would find that rest, that rest that's waiting for us on the other side of eternity. One day where we will enjoy heaven and the fellowship with all the saints in the kingdom. When you create all things new, where we get to sit and enjoy the fellowship around the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we thank you once again for your glorious grace, and we ask that you please once again restore the vibrancy in our faith that we may diligently pursue that rest that's waiting for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together and close with one last song of praise. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near.
Amen. You are dismissed.